You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Coaches, welcome to an incredibly important episode of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. This episode is going to discuss issues of race and how that affects a coaching relationship. So I know that this might be an idea that really maybe we haven't all thought about. Um, it wasn't something that I thought about very much. I was the same race as the majority of the people that I coached. My teachers were largely um, Latinx, and I am half Latinx and half white, so it wasn't something that I really spent a lot of time thinking about. But um, now, you know, putting things kind of into a uh, the light of issues that have been arising over the last few years, and reading the work of Elena Aguilar, who talks about issues of, of justice and race and how they affect coaching work, I really wanted to have someone on who was going to help us think through this idea and kind of give us some tools that we can use to examine our coaching work and see what we can do to make sure that that race is not affecting our coaching, coaching relationships in a negative way and that we are being supportive of teachers um, wherever they are coming from. So I am really excited today to have Naomi O'Brien from Read Like a Rockstar on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Naomi. Thank you. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here today, and I would love if you could start with introducing yourself and sharing about your experiences in education and really everything that brought you to this point in your life. Yeah, so my name is Naomi O'Brien. I have been teaching for 10 years. I'm not going back this year, but it would have been the start of my 11th year um, in primary grade levels. I have mostly been in K through two, but one year I was the K through five gifted and talented teacher. Um, but I love the lower grade levels um, in primary. And even before that, I always worked in daycares or I was subbing. So I've just always worked with kids basically my whole life. Um, I'm also a mom and a wife. Um, and then I'm a black woman. So I feel like all of that together has just kind of made me the person that I am and allowed me to have the experiences that I've had for better or worse. Um, I remember doing an, an experiment at school or doing this identity research at school and we were supposed to find our groups and my student teacher and I were both black and the only black teachers at school mm. and we made our identity group is like we're black because we're like no matter what we are we're a black thing like we're not just teachers we're black teachers we're not just women we're black women and that will always have an effect on us and even some of the other like a coworker of mine was like oh well we're both moms maybe we can make a mom group and I was like but I'm a black mom and that's just not the same thing so I feel like my blackness has definitely shaped all of my identities no matter what mm -hmm. identity I hold um, in and out of the classroom. Yeah, thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, that's a good point. You know, I know I turn to your your Instagram stories. You do share so much information, and you have a really great resource as well about um, about having conversations about anti-racism with children. And I actually purchased that resource uh, a couple months ago, and it was really great. So I'd love. I know that you're working on so many different things. So I would love to hear about what you're working on right now. That's really important to you. Yeah, so I'm super excited because um, if you know Lanisha Tab, she and I collaborate a lot. We co-author a lot of teaching resources that we put out that try to tackle social and racial justice issues in the classroom. We actually wrote a book. So last summer, wow. we started writing a book together, and it is due to come out in September. So we're really excited about that. We just got um, our book back for the last time, and this is the last chance to read it and edit it and make any changes before um, it goes on pre-order. So super wow. excited about that because it's really just our life's work of teaching and the practices and things that we do in the classroom that we feel would be beneficial for students in every classroom. Some of the mistakes that we've made along the way and just how we've grown into trying to be more intentional um, mm -hmm. with our teaching and making sure that we are checking our biases and not centering um, whiteness in the classroom, which is just 
the thing to do. It's just part of the culture. So um, I'm so excited to get that out there because a lot of teachers will reach out to me and say like, well, how do I do this and how do I do that? And I really feel like this book is our story of here's how we do it. And maybe it could, you know, inspire you to do something similar or start your own journey. That's amazing. What is this book called? It's called Unpack Your Impact. Okay. That's great. That's going to be super impactful for a lot of people. So I'm glad that it's coming out soon. I think that a lot of people are just getting started on this journey of kind of figuring out what they think and and recognizing some of these ideas. And so I hope that people take advantage of that because that'll really give them a good direction um, and help them be thoughtful about everything that's going on in there. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. (laughs) So I would like to start this conversation just kind of like with a, you know, an understanding of what white supremacy actually is, because I know You know, recently I actually had a conversation with someone um, and I said something about, well, white supremacy is, I said, white supremacy is a thing. (laughs) And they said it is, but the implication was that it was rare and it was um, like with individuals that you could identify easily. So they were picturing people that are like overtly racist, um, you know, and have like Nazi symbols on the back of their cars and they're comfortable with being racist. Like they're putting that out in the world and they're saying, yes, this is the way it should be. And so they picture like burning crosses and things like that, right. really obvious acts of terror. But I, you know, in, in learning over this, about this over time, you know, I know that's a very reductive definition of white supremacy, that that is kind of reducing it to its like, its most essential pieces to where it's no longer really representative of the definition of white supremacy. So can you share with us what that actually is so we can have a good understanding of that? Yeah, I think that a lot of people hold the misconception that a white supremacist and white supremacy is basically the same thing, and it's not. So what they're thinking about when they hear white supremacy is just a white supremacist, and they're saying, well, that's just that one, you know, really over-the-top person. They're so rare. They get in trouble for their actions. Why are we focusing on that when there's so much other people that are good? Um, when I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the pyramid of white supremacy, but there's actually so many things that are a part of this system, and that's what it is. It's a system, it's a system, and it's a historical system. It's been in place forever. Um, there was, and I can't remember the person that said the quote, but they're saying that people look at white supremacy as the shark. It's out to get you. It's harmful. It's aggressive, and white supremacy is not the shark. It's the water. We're all in it all the time, which is why it's so hard to see. And people are so busy looking for the shark that they're not realizing that it's the water that's around you and you're just in it all the time. So now um, back to the pyramid of white supremacy, there at the top is where you have the white supremacists. So yes, they exist, but they're all the way at the top. But there are so many steps along the way before you get there, like minimizing black experiences, discrimination, indifference to, you know, the oppression that's going on, calls for violence even, and each level supports the level above it. So yes, there's the white supremacists that are possibly few and far between, like some people believe, but they couldn't exist without all of the seemingly smaller steps below it that keep the system in place. Um, And it's been around forever. It's like thinking about police brutality. And people are like, oh, well, it's just a few cops that are white supremacists. Let's just fire them. And then the rest of the, you know, police force is fine. And it's like, no, it's a system. The whole police force itself is a part of white supremacy. The whole system needs to change. It's not just a matter of changing a few people. It's a matter of dismantling and rebuilding the entire system. And that's the point that I always feel like people seem to miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think because, like you said, if it's in the water, I mean, it takes a real adjustment of our perception to right. see all the elements um, that do make up white supremacy. And it once you start looking to notice, looking to observe it, you do find so many examples. But um, okay. if you don't have that purpose, then you then you miss it. You just don't notice it. It's like it's kind of like a blind spot. You just don't observe it. Um, until you are trying to look into that blind spot and you're like, oh, something's wrong, you know, then you see it. Yes, for sure. And I've talked to so many people that they didn't see it before and they've, you know, had disagreements with me or arguments with me and they're saying whatever. Mm -hmm. And then once, I don't know what it is that clicked with them and I've actually started to take to 
asking people like, can I ask why the change of heart now? Because this is something that I'm trying to figure out so I can expedite and other people I have conversations with. And they're just like, now I see it. I can't believe I didn't see this before. And like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But until you're willing to kind of take the lens off and take a close look, reflect, examine things, you can miss it because it's just, it's, it's the water. It's just, you've been in it for so long that you can't tell what's white supremacy and what's not. And I think as a white person not seeing it, it's, it's easy to not see it because you're like, well, what's, everything's fine. I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting special treatment is something I hear a lot. I'm not getting special treatment. And that's not, it's not about that necessarily. It's, it's the, our entire system is set up to where we value some things and we don't value other things. And right. things that we value are whiteness and the things that we don't are not. <laughs> right. And I think a part of that is that it's assumed that maybe they're asking for things and it's like, you don't have to ask for anything like you right. can to a job interview and you didn't tell the person like, Hey, I'm white. You should hire me because I'm white. They can see that you're white. And if they have that bias that they've not examined and there's two candidates in front of them, they may be, and it's not always, but they may be more inclined to choose the white person. And you didn't ask for it, but just the fact that you showed up white mm -hmm. gave you an advantage. Um, like I have a friend whose brother-in-law, um, he went out for, I forgot the position at some school, but an administrative position, no experience in education whatsoever. And just because he's this rich white guy, he got it. And he's even laughing to the family like, oh my goodness, I can't believe wow. that I got this position. I don't even know what I'm doing basically. And it's like, oh gosh, you, but a black person with no experience couldn't walk in and be like, oh wow, I got the position. And there may have been a qualified black candidate. And because this guy is this rich white male and the school's like, okay, we'll give you a chance. Wow. Um, now he didn't say I'm white, give me the job, but you can't deny that that played a part in it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's whenever you try to picture things on the flip side, that's whenever you say, oh yeah, that probably would not happen in right. a situation. Yes. So we're thinking about this idea of white supremacy and we're trying to understand how race can impact the work we do as instructional coaches. So that is an idea that, you know, I've tried to do some reading about, and there's just not a lot out there. So I'm hoping that you can help us understand some more. Elena Aguilar is a, um, an instructional coach who does have um, books around the idea of equity and race and privilege and coaching. Um, but beyond that, I haven't found too much. So can you introduce us to the idea of how race can play a role in a relationship like a coaching relationship? Well, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely think that it plays a role in every relationship mm -hmm. and then in a coaching relationship. And, you know, I'm the teacher in this mm -hmm. scenario because I haven't been in a coaching position, but they're already in a position of power over you. So if that's a white coach over a black teacher, that can definitely affect the situation. And when I think about coaches, like think about coaches that I've had that are coming in to observe you or give you feedback or help you become a better teacher, their, their perception of you matters. Um, I remember when I first moved to Denver, one of the first schools I was at, um, met the instructional coach and she's super nice um, and great. And one of the first things she says to me is that I speak so well for a black person. <gasps> that immediately obviously puts me well, yeah, you know, it puts a bad taste in my mouth of like, oh gosh, you're yeah. those people that says things like that. And then there's that privilege and that power position of like, do I say something right now? My first time meeting her right. and call her out. And then that's going to affect the way that she coaches me for the rest of the year. Cause you have to wrestle with things like that all of the time, because right. I know she, I know what her intentions were, but her intentions don't matter. So it's like, do I say something? And then she's going to say, no, here's what I meant gaslighting me, minimizing the experience, and then further creating a rift in a, the relationship we're just starting, or do I just let it go? But then if you let it go, that opens her up to continue to say more things like this to me, or even to another black person, because I didn't say anything about it. Um, and I, at, and at that point in time, I didn't say anything about it. I think that was my fourth year teaching and I was new to the school. I just moved. Yeah. I was new to the district and I didn't say anything about it, even though it really bothered me. But then it got me thinking, um, well, if, if, she if she looked at me and assumed I was going to be speaking a certain way and then was so impressed that I just, I don't like, and I don't, I was like, I don't have this impressive vocabulary. I'm not this well-read scholar, you know, I don't have a PhD. So what are you so impressed with? It's the fact that because I'm black, you assume that I was going to be a certain way and you were impressed that I don't speak that way. So then it just makes me think about 
well, what else are you looking at me like that with? What, like that lens you have on me um, and judging me for it. Like um, when I'm interacting with the students, you know, the way that you're perceiving our relationship because everyone sees, sees things through their, their lens of bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can think of, there was actually one time when I wasn't a coach, but I had a student teacher and the, all the mentor teachers had to go around and observe and kind of give feedback to the other student teachers. And I remember having to think about that and be like, okay, am I thinking this because I really like this teacher or because um, she has cute fashion style or because this one like looks like she has a bad attitude. And it's really a lot to keep track of to make sure that you are keeping your bias out of it. And I definitely think that when you're not aware of that race, definitely plays a part in it. And so many people um, believe that because they're nice or they're a good person that they couldn't possibly be participating in in systems like that. But you are, especially when you don't um, allow yourself to think about it and Mm -hmm. reflect on the things that you say and that you do and that you think and why you think those things, why you're willing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt and kind of coach them more or why you're so willing to write them off, say they're a bad teacher, they have a bad attitude, you're not dealing with them anymore. Mm -hmm. You have, and maybe it's not always race, but you have to stop and consider that maybe that was the reason that the interaction went down that way. Sure. Yeah. I think even just communicating about like setting up that coaching relationship. Um, I think that if we, I mean, we do spend time with teachers that it's, it's supposed to be focused on relationship building. Mm-hmm. And I think whenever we're coming from such very different backgrounds, it can really um, you can have factors influencing that relationship building that you're not aware of. And you might literally not be aware of it. It's not that it's, that it's coming from you, that even if, even if let's say you don't have a bias against this person based on their race, there could be cultural differences there mm-hmm. that you're not aware of that are, that are impacting this relationship you're trying to build. Like I know I came from, as a classroom teacher, I worked in one part of our city and I was, you know, surrounded by the majority of teachers who were also Latinx like me. And then I moved to, as a coach, I moved to a different part of our city who, again, the majority of teachers were Latinx, but culturally they were, there were more um, first generation uh, individuals there. There were more people who, um, who were immigrants themselves. There were, um, people with stronger ties to Mexico. I'm on, I'm in a border city. We're right on the border. So, I mean, it's very, you know, people cross all the time, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a normal day, you know, and, um, and we're unbelievably safe. <laughs> so it's a very safe city to live in. And um, anyway, I feel like I have to address that whenever it comes up. So the, um, these teachers and I had different cultures. I am a half I'm half Latinx, I'm half white. I was raised pretty much as a white person because my mom is white. She did most of the raising. Um, mm-hmm. My dad did most of the working, you know? <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how they balance that out. And so culturally, I didn't know the TV shows they were talking about. I didn't have the same culture of um, even little things like like the way that they would, the, the way they wrote ha 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 in a text message. Sounds like nothing, but it took me a while to figure out they were saying ha 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 and not because it's J-A-J-A-J-A. So (laughs) little things like that, I just didn't know the culture. I didn't know, and I didn't have the same cultural um, maybe cues that they did. So I'm not sure what I, I mean, I'm sure that I did things that were not helpful to building that coaching relationship in certain situations. And I was completely unaware of it. And I had to get acclimated and learn about it over time Um, and ask questions sometimes of people I could ask questions of. But yeah, that was a big, big shift for me. So in thinking about that, how is this different when we consider privilege being held in different places in the relationship? And privilege can take a lot of forms, but in this case, we're talking about, about being white and, or, or being some, you know, anything, a real a person of color. So if we're like talking about a white coach who's working with teachers of color versus a black coach who's working with white teachers, that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like? How is it different whenever we have privilege in different places? I mean, I think it looks like um, the standard that the white coach sets or like their cultural norms or their expectations or what a, an effective teacher looks like for them could be different, even though they can have different approaches and still be effective. If it's going through this lens of this white person in this power position, if you're not doing things their way, then it's perceived as you're not an effective teacher, which can lead to tension and frustration because we're like, I'm still delivering 
sound instruction, my classroom management is on point, but because I'm not doing it in a white way, mm -hmm. everything is being perceived as negative. Um, and I think for, on the coach's side, they're not thinking about like, oh, I'm holding you to my white standards. They're just like, right. no, this is what I see as a highly effective teacher. And if you're not doing this and it takes some time and then the pushback on that is uncomfortable. You know, like I've seen teachers call out um, coaches. One of my first schools, um, I had a coworker who was black that, and she, <laughs> she just had no filter, but she would say things like that. And maybe it wasn't delivered in the best way, but it was true um, of like, no, you're holding me to white standards. I'm not white. This is how I teach. My parents love me. My students love me. My data is great. So what's the problem here? Because I'm not teaching it, you know, like, um, like I'm this bubbly blonde, it doesn't mean that I'm not a good teacher and that's what you're looking for. And that's not me. Like she should always say like, I'm Sydney from Chicago and this is how I teach. And you're, you just have a problem that it's not through your lens of what you think a teacher should be like. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just mm -hmm. different. And I think that that's something that maybe coaches would have to examine of like, why do I have an issue with this? Or why do I praise this teacher over that teacher? Or why, like the things that I think are effective, like, could they be, um, whiteness, you know, attached to any of this. And that's why I hold this standard. Even if it's, you're following what the school said, here's the thing to look for. Where did that come from? Who made that list? Um, who was that list made for? Like what teacher were they thinking about executing these things when that was made? Um, because guaranteed, if you're going back historically, it wasn't for teachers of color to be following. And it probably wasn't made by a teacher of color either. That is such an interesting thought. Can you help me? I'm trying to picture and understand better because this is an area that I've been, I've been reading more in, but I'm, I'm, I don't think I've read the right book yet because I, I still don't have clarity. <laughs> so this idea of, of whiteness and what that looks like in a classroom, can you give me some examples of what that might be? So you, you gave the example of the teacher who says, well, I'm not, I'm not white and that's not that. So that doesn't look like that for me. Um, so, but I'm still a good teacher. What is that difference or what does it look like? I'm just trying to visualize it. Yeah. I think of an example that I've read before that made things really clear for me is like black church versus white church. And it was like, if you're at white church, you come in, you sit down, things are orderly. Um, the music's playing, you quietly clap or quietly sing along. The preacher preaches, you nod along, that's it. You, you know, say bye and that's that. And that at like black church, you come in, it's loud, you're hugging, the songs are playing, you're yelling amen, you're dancing, you're jumping around. The preacher is preaching and you're talking back. You're interrupting him, interacting with him if he's going to say this powerful statement and the whole congregation doesn't shout amen or, you know, <laughs> he'd be like, Ooh, what's wrong. And, but if you went to white church and during the songs, you're dancing and yelling and interrupting the preacher, mm -hmm. it, would be, it would be considered rude because that's not the culture there. Um, right. So in the classroom, like where one teacher is comfortable or okay with their students interacting in a certain way because culturally they don't find that to be disrespectful or rude. They find it to be engagement or authenticity if kids are not sitting down and it's okay if kids are calling out as long as they're engaged. Um, if kids are still engaged in the learning, they're making growth, they have great relationships with their peers and their teacher, why is that something to get marked off of or marked off on if it doesn't look like, you know, seats all in a row, everyone's quiet, eyes on the teacher, don't interrupt, make sure you raise your hand, like all of these rules in place, like that could work for one classroom and possibly be great, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong if another classroom is operating in a different way because the, the teacher, you know, culturally, it's okay for that. Like what's, one, what's rude or ineffective in one lens may not be rude and effective for another one and to not explore that um, and just write it off as, nope, this is the wrong way because it's not the way I would do things, which is usually rooted in whiteness of like, okay, here's the things, here's what's proper, here's what's good, here's our culture, you need to like, step into this, and if you don't, then you're wrong. I feel like it's just not okay to force teachers or students to fall into. That is such, thank you for clarifying that because that's, um, I'm, I'm a Catholic, by the way, so we're kind of, we're, we're pretty reverent when we go to church, but um, mm -hmm. we also you know, we, we like, we like to have fun. So, we're kind of <laughs> 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 but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's so in, it's because to me, the way you describe it is expression of joy, 
right? I mean, that's the what it sounded like to me, the way that we're comfortable expressing joy. And um, if we think about classrooms that have expressions of joy, but the kids are learning, then right. that's actually great <laughs> because you want kids engaged and joyful about their learning. And I know that I, I tend to have, I mean, I, whenever we're excited about something, why wouldn't we be excited? You know, and I think that's, that's, an interesting thing to think about. I'm trying to envision certain classrooms that I work with and, and think about kind of where they fell in that air, that spectrum sort of, or like what their classroom looked like in terms of um, interactions with kids. And that's a very interesting idea. And I do think it can be hard because you really have to distinguish that like in any classroom, if you're thinking about management or interactions, are we, are kids engaged? Are kids learning or are they not? Right. And as a coach, that's what you're looking for. That's the whole point. The purpose of all any checklist or any, you know, any observation tool or anything like that, and, and we're not really supposed to be evaluative, evaluative anyway, but the purpose of any of these tools is to help you figure out if kids are learning, because that's the point. Mm -hmm. So all this other stuff, if it's getting in the way of you figuring out if kids are learning, then it's not helpful. Right. So, <laughs> so is there something about the way that schools are set up that kind of compounds this idea of of privilege and um, and race affecting our relationships in this way? Well, yeah, I mean, I, and again, I think it just goes back to historically how schools have come to be what they are, like how they were set up, um, schools being segregated and then integrated again, and even just there being laws about like black teachers aren't allowed to teach white students and that we're not too far off from those things. And like, there were, you know, practices and policies put in place when schools got integrated to make sure that black kids were kept under control, you know, because there was this idea that they're wild and when left to their own devices, they're aggressive and they can't function. And um, so you see, I feel like you still see the remnants of those mindsets and those policies around today. Like I, I'm specifically thinking about hair policies that strictly target black kids, like no dreadlocks, like kids are not allowed to wear their hair the way it naturally grows out of their heads. Why right. not? Um, I've never and I think that there's a lot of schools, educators, administrators, coaches that need to kind of take a look at some of these standards that have been set and reevaluate if this is something in 2020, we still want to be adhering to, or does this need to be revised and really examine the roots of these things and see what actually works best for right. the people and the students that they're serving in their buildings. Yeah, looking at our, our policies and saying, is there any point to this? What is the point of this? Why does this exist? And if the reason it exists is not supportive of kids and learning or adults right. and having a good work environment, then what's the point? Like, there's no, and then think, the point might be questionable. <laughs> yeah, and if a teacher has arrived there, mm -hmm. but their coach or their administration has not, yeah. then there's yeah. going to be some friction because the teacher right. is saying, the teacher is, you know, they're in the trenches, they're with the kids face-to-face -face every day. So if they make the decision that they feel is best for their kids, but it goes against what their coach has advised them to do that they find to be harmful or what their school policy is that they find to be harmful. There's going to be friction if they can't get everybody on board and to see why they actually think this is harmful and not beneficial, um, which is where I feel like that relationship would come into handy where if you had a good relationship with your coach, like I, I had um, a white coach back when I was in the classroom two years ago. And it was something that like I, at that point in time, just kind of, stuck to myself. I was the only black teacher at school. She was nice enough, but you're always like on edge of like, I don't know what she might say that could cause some racial harm. Um, and one day she came in and I forgot what had recently been happening in the news, but she came in just to say, I understand that I don't get things, you know, like I'm a white woman, but I would, um, I want you to know that like, I'm here for you and you probably don't feel comfortable talking to me about things, but I want you to know that you can't. And it was, she was uncomfortable and awkward, but she was trying right. her best. And I appreciated the effort of like, I don't know how to start these conversations with right. you. But if there's anything you want to have a talk about, which actually did. And I never came to her to talk to her about anything, but it was nice to know that I could if I wanted to, or to know that she was doing work on her end, because you just never know if it's never brought up. Like people don't, don't intentionally bring race into the conversation and then right. you never know where somebody stands and then you don't want to make things uncomfortable or you don't want to make the year harder for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I actually got fired from a position in Denver for um, bringing up racial uncomfortability that the principal was putting on me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, you always fear that, like, you don't know what, how the conversation is going to go, if the person's going to be open to the feedback, if, right. especially if you're in the teacher position, because, um, at any school I've been at, you know, coaches are admin. So if they don't like what you're saying, they just talk to the principal and then you're getting reprimanded just for oh, wow. truth. Um, so it's really frustrating. Or you've had friends that, you know, have been in similar situations. So mm-hmm. you're not inclined to speak up first, but if they would offer that olive branch of trying to understand or here's what I've been reading or here's what I've been trying to do then you're like oh okay like we're on the same team cool yes that's such yeah it's true because I meet people all the time and sometimes you kind of want to ask a few litmus test questions and just kind yeah. of think, think, right that you don't you mean that's not something you bring up in the first time you meet somebody usually right. so yeah absolutely you don't know and, and people can make you feel comfortable at least by saying, you know, look, I'm aware of this and I am trying to learn more about it and I'm trying to change my own actions to reflect what I'm learning. Yeah. Um, it can make people feel at least supported and to yeah. a degree. Um, that's, that's a really great um, thing to do as a coach. So you mentioned earlier a little bit about bias. Um, so what is bias and how does it take hold in us? Like where, where is it coming from? And you kind of well, talked about this, but I really want to clarify it. Yeah. So bias, we... I forgot the age. I wish I knew the age off the top of my head, but starting from when you're younger, you know, you're taking in all of this information and you start to form thoughts and opinions about people and things. And they are ascribed to, you know, gender and race and all sorts of things. And they are the um, subconscious unconscious thoughts that you have like opinions and beliefs that you hold that you don't even think about it it's like a reflex um if you see somebody like for me i can think about like the biases that i have against men sorry any men that are listening like if i'm walking even just in a grocery store which is should be a pretty safe space and i see like and i'm in alone in the aisle with a man i'm just immediately on guard and like keeping my eye on him of like is he going to say something is he going to try something because I have, because of my experiences being younger, like I have a bias against men and I'm aware of it. So like, if someone says hi, like I'm not going to be like, (laughs) and just walk away. Like I can be like, okay, I'm on guard, but I can still smile and say hi back. And then, you know, see where this goes. But if you are not aware of those things, they creep into your thoughts. They creep into the things that you say and they creep into your actions. Um, So you are going to favor certain people over others because of their skin color. You can have a bias towards or against other people. Um, And I think sometimes when we talk about bias, people think about like, well, I don't dislike this person. And it may not be that you dislike somebody at your site that's black, but it may be that you like somebody way more than you possibly need to just because they're white. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you think they're the best teacher. They're such a funny person. They're just whatever. And a lot of it has to do with their whiteness, or maybe it's even, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I don't like that one person. And you haven't stopped to really reflect about it, but it's because they're black. Um, and whatever your, your um, earlier experiences with black people are, you built up a bias along the way to associate black with negative, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's worth exploring because you may do some reflection and realize like, oh no, like I'm good to go. Like I really am as neutral as possible and I don't do those things. But it's still worth exploring just to say, I don't hold those biases, so I'm not reflecting on anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't serve or help anyone. Um, it's something that even I have to do as a Black teacher because I grew up in America and the images and stories and things that you see about Black children aren't always positive. So even for me as a Black woman, like I'm susceptible to holding negative biases about, about Black children in my classroom because of the images that I see. And I have to say, okay, I'm not going to label this child as aggressive or wild or anything like that. And then give this other child the benefit of the doubt of like, oh, they're having a bad day, but no, this black girl has an attitude. So I think it's something that we all have to work on daily um, to make sure that the biases that we hold against certain people don't affect the way that we treat them or work to undo them. And if you don't stop to do that work, you won't realize that, oh, wow, I tend to really favor this, or I tend to really be negative towards that Mm -hmm. for no reason other than the fact of race. And kids hold these biases. You know, in the anti-racism guide that you're talking about earlier, we made a little bias test for kids to have. And it's the same looking child. They're just in different shades of skin color. And you ask your kids, well, who's the best one? Who's the bad one? Who's a good friend? Who's a bad friend? And 
they have their biases. They start making decisions based on race at like two and three years old. That's what I read too. Yeah. And then they start attaching negative things to race, I think at five and six years old, and they start picking their friends based on race at five and six years old as well. Mm -hmm. So they don't know why they're doing it. Their kid's not going to tell you, mom, I don't want to be friends with that person because they're black. They might say they're mean or they say mean things because that's how they perceive them because of their bias. Um, so I think it's definitely important that to recognize that we all hold them. It's not, do I have biases? It's what are my biases and what can I do about them once I discover them? Um, like yeah. I noticed in my second year, um, I shared this story at a conference um, this summer that I had a bias towards the little boys in my classroom. I was just easier on them for whatever reason. And, and you know, I don't know why, but I, even with my own kids, like I always wanted to have sons even before like I was married or anything. I was like, oh, when I grow up, I just want to have cute little boys. So I have this bias towards little boys. And I remember about halfway during the school year in kindergarten, um, one of the little boys in class got in trouble and the kids in my class were shocked. And they were like, we didn't know that he was allowed to get in trouble. He never gets in trouble. And I was like, wow. what do you mean he never gets in trouble? And they're like, he never gets in trouble and he's always talking and he does this and he does that. And I was like, they notice oh, it. yeah, and they notice it, but my own bias didn't mm -hmm. allow me to notice that he did things that other kids have gotten in trouble for that I never said to him about. So from that moment on, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to be extra intentional about making sure I really am treating all of these kids equally, whether they're a boy or a girl or anything like that. Cause something else I noticed is it's kindergarten, you know, they're all whiny is I would let the boys whine more than the little girls. I had no patience for the little girls whining, but the little boys whining was like, oh, it's okay. Like, well, and then I was like, oh my gosh, like I do that. I need to hold them all to the same standard. And like, they're fine. It's okay if they're emotional, like let them whine. So once I realized that, and that was my second year teaching. And now, you know, I'm past year 10. That's something I still have to think about, you know, working with kindergarten and first grade of like, am I favoring the boys? Am I doing this to this little girl because I like unconsciously favor boys like um, and I have to think about that and it's something you have to think about every single day even after an incident happens mm -hmm. did that happen because I wasn't being fair to the little girl did that happen because mm -hmm. I wasn't being thinking about this person's race or I was thinking about this person's race and it's something you constantly have to work at to get better so sometimes yeah we can even have a bias against something that is that makes up part of our own identity <laughs> so just being one thing or another or being married to a person who has a certain identity or, right. you know, having friends that are a certain identity doesn't mean that you don't have bias. Individuals mm -hmm. sometimes can, you know, we, we make allowances, <laughs> right? Yeah. What, you make an exception, but exception. you can still yeah. hold a bias for an entire racial group. Yes. So, um, okay, so this is an important question, and I, I've, we've seen this a lot, and I've done some reading around it, but microaggressions are something, and you, you kind of mentioned this towards the beginning when you are talking about your experience with that coach that had a comment to say about your, your speaking yeah. ability. Um, so I know microaggressions are something that can really undermine you know, any kind of positive relationship because they're perceived on one end and not on the other, right? So one person is putting it out there and bewildered and the other person is like, mm, I can see, I see something here. So can you define microaggression and maybe share some examples of what that looks like? Because I know that there are people who haven't looked into that yet and are saying things that they might feel are harmless, but they actually can be. Yeah. Yes. And to add on to that harmless part, I think that's the tricky thing with microaggressions is that they are usually said as a compliment or they are meant yeah. as a compliment or they're said as a joke, which is not a joke wow. at all. Yes. So that when they are challenged, the person is so defensive because they were just trying to compliment you right. or they were just trying to be funny. And then they switch it around on you and saying that you're being too sensitive. Mm -hmm. So microaggressions are just these, they're insults, they're jabs, they're observations, they're negative observations, but they're framed as compliments. Um, for example, like when that coach said, oh, you speak really well for a black person. Mm -hmm. um, and what she's saying is, oh, you're black. Most black people sound uneducated when they right. speak or they don't speak well. So I was very surprised to hear the way that you sound. So you try to uplift me, but you're putting down my entire race. Right. Um, and then Remember, you're an exception. Right. Right. Um, you're a credit to your race. You're a good one. Yeah. I, I worked at this daycare once and I was working with this older white woman and we'd been working together for months and she was fine enough. And then one day on a walk, we were with the babies, so we we're pushing the babies around and 
she says like, you know, she's like, I've got to tell you, like, you're just such a beautiful woman. And it's like, okay, thank you. And she's like, you're probably the prettiest black woman I've ever seen. Um, Cause the rest of the black women I've seen are not that attractive. Oh my gosh. And it was like, what? Is that even a microaggression anymore? I feel like it's so well, I know. See, and that, it is because it's on that individual level. Okay. Um, okay. Even though like it's out, it's like, whoa, like that's really charged, but it's still considered a microaggression. Because okay. <laughs> as far as my understanding is. Um, but I was like, well, like my, my mom is black. My sister's black. I have black cousins. Like that's really, right. I, I know how you meant it, but that really wasn't okay to say. And she's right. getting mad at me now of like, no, I'm giving you a compliment. Like you really, I, right. I usually don't see attractive black women. And, and it's like, stop saying that. Like, it's right. really rude. And I even went to um, my boss and this was at a daycare. I was working at Trinity Christian school. And like, it's like, again, I was one of the few black um, daycare workers working there. And I went to my white boss to tell her about it. And she was like, Oh, you know, well, I think she was just trying to give you a compliment. Uh-huh. Um, and it's like, no. And it's like, that's a problem too, is I think a lot of white people get so caught up in intentions and they right. think about like, well, that could have easily happened to me. So they side with the other white person. They focus on intention. And when you go to complain about something like that or try to get justice, the higher up you go, usually the whiter it is and the more they're not going to get it. Um, so yeah, it's just the little things like that. Like I have been places, a lot of people comment on how I speak. Like I was at church and a woman in front of her middle school children asked me if I was raised by white people. And that's why I'm able to speak so well because she's never heard black people speak so well. And it's like, Nope, my parents taught me how to speak. I was raised with two black parents. I don't, I don't even understand. And it's like, no, wow. Well, like you speak so well and they're genuinely not trying to be rude, but it's really rude thing ever. And it's so uncomfortable and awkward. And it's usually in front of other people. And then it's like, if I make a scene, now I'm this crazy, aggressive black woman that, you know, has a bad attitude, which feeds into the stereotype that they already think about you because you already surprised them with how you speak. So then if you go and act stereotypically black in their minds, then it's like, oh, of course, Um, you are just like them. Right. It's hard to navigate because like I was saying, it's usually framed as a compliment. And then when you try to educate around it, it's taken as you're attacking them or you're calling them racist and then they just get defensive and try to explain themselves. And then that's going to ruin the relationship really quickly because it, they, they don't understand it. And then it just opens the doors for it to happen again. And you know that another conversation about it won't be received well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's a very difficult position to be in because you know that this is being perpetuated by them everywhere. And um, you're like, well, should I say something? And because, She's going to keep saying this, but the right. truth is, they're probably going to keep saying it anyway. <laughs> so, they, right. at least. So, this is like you're talking about this idea of of um, impact is more important than intent. Impact is bigger than intent. We intend some things maybe harmlessly, but the impact is harmful. And so, how can we actually examine our own words and actions to see if they are coming from a racist place? Because you know, I've had conversations with friends um, and one of them told me recently, I read this line in this book and it just, I, she was reading, um, so you want to talk about race. And she said, it just, it really bothered me because I don't understand what, where it's even coming from. She just, she couldn't see, she had not seen that example of racism and she couldn't fathom it at all. And she was really trying, but mm-hmm. she didn't have the framework to see it. Um, So she was worried about her own actions. She was like, I think I do this, but I don't know why it's racist because it didn't explain to her exactly why it was racist. She couldn't, she was like, I don't understand it. So how can we examine our own words and actions to see if we're being racist? I think um, you just have to do as much reading and learning and listening as possible. Um, Whenever I am asked this question, I always try to, I'm like, what would that even feel like? Because I'm not white, so I don't understand what it would feel like to have to do this work. And I always try to think about the LGBTQ plus community that I am not a part of, um, that I have to figure out things. I was like, I'm sure I've said offensive things like that I didn't mean to say. And like, what can I do is just do reading and learning and listening, like follow as many voices as possible Mm -hmm. and 
listen to what they're saying um, because everything isn't going to be written down in a book. There are some books, you know, written by black authors that will spell out some of these things, but it doesn't mean that it's an exhaustive list of like, okay, here's everything. And if you just follow this checklist, <laughs> we're good to go. Yeah. So as much reading as possible, listening as possible. And then unfortunately, some of the times you're just going to have to make the mistake and get called out for it to right. learn, from it, which nobody wants to happen because getting called out is not fun. Mm -hmm. um, and that person, that relationship may never bounce back. Right. But along the learning way, that may just be what has to happen. And then you know better for the next time for the next person that you encounter. But um, I think there are a lot of other things you can avoid if you are simply reading, even a Google search, like if you're saying, oh, I don't know if I've committed a microaggression, I compliment people all the time. Um, Google microaggressions, there's so many videos and exercises of people from all sorts of different backgrounds saying the things that are said to them that they find to be insulting and demeaning yeah. um, to them. And you can examine if you've said things like that and then moving forward, do better. That's a really good place to start. Yes, Google is amazing. Um, I think it was, was it Michael Jordan who said something about these kids today, if, if, if the internet had been around whenever I was a kid, I would have been a doctor already. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know why that quote just sticks in my head. It just, it just cracks me up. So what can coaches do? Like if they're, if they're listening now and they realize, you know what, I've done some of these things, you know, so maybe I am perpetuating racism or bias. What can they do about it? I think you change those actions, you know, right away and say, oh my goodness, I've done this in the past or I didn't do this in the past. I need to start doing this. Go ahead and make the changes. Um, you can't, you know, beat yourself too much about like the past because you can't control that, but you can do better moving forward. I think you can try to reach out to other coaches maybe that are on a similar path as you and you all can learn together, like form a little team about yeah. it. And then maybe you could even get with coaches of color um, or black coaches, indigenous coaches and learn from them and the way that they um, work with their teachers and then pick up a few things or examine your practices against theirs and see if there's anything to take from that or just in your own style of coaching. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. So where can people go to learn more about this idea? Um, I really think the, the internet Googling <laughs> okay. because everyone, I think everyone has a different starting point. Um, mm -hmm. And you're the only person that knows where you need to start. Like you may be good okay. to go in one area, like, Oh, I, microaggressions. I never say things like that. I know better, mm -hmm. but you may have another area that you need to focus on that you're not even aware of. So doing some self-reflection and realizing the starting point that works best for you. Um, Cause sometimes people like, you don't know what you don't know until you start reading and learning and saying, Oh wow, I didn't even know this was a thing. Now I know, and now I'll do better. So I think just, a lot mm -hmm. of self-reflection, even if it's a practice that you thought was so great, um, re-examine it and think about it with a racial lens and really ask yourself those questions, um, which I feel like it should be easy to be honest with yourself. Like you don't have to be around anybody else and tell them what you're working on, but mm -hmm. um, be honest with yourself, self-reflection every single day with every choice that you're making. Why am I making this choice? Does race have anything to do with this choice? How would this impact you know, this black teacher versus this white teacher, am I truly being equitable and fair? Um, and then I think you'll start to uncover things that you may not have seen before. Yeah, that's, those are good. I like those questions actually, because that can help you be really reflective. Do you have any specific books that are really helpful to start with or that you've really enjoyed or think are great? Um, I really liked, um, what's it called? I'm still here and it's called Black it's, it's a real long title. I'm still here. Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness um, by Austin Channing. And what was so, it was great. And it was also really depressing at the same time. But it's just the experience, the everyday experiences of this black woman, her name's Austin, um, going through life. And she starts from her childhood all the way up until being an adult. And I, she so beautifully and perfectly captured what it feels like to be a black woman in white spaces that mm -hmm. I felt like I could have written this book, like the microaggressions to the outright racism she faces. Like, I was like, I've had all of these experiences that she's had and we're not the same person. And you know, my friend, two of my black friends read it and they said the exact same thing. So I really wonder what any of her past coworkers reading the book would feel like, because I'm sure a lot of them will see themselves 
listed in there and say like, oh my goodness, I've said this to her. I did this to her. I didn't realize it was so awful and impacted her in this way. So I feel like white people reading that, and I've suggested it to a few of my white friends to read it, could see like, this is the kind of stuff that we deal with on the daily that other people say and then go about their day and never bat an eye. Meanwhile, we go home and lose sleep over it. Or now the relationship has been tainted and the other person doesn't know. So you're put in this uncomfortable position. But I feel like that was a really good one um, that could help white people see some of the daily microaggressions and then even out to outright racism that black people have to deal with and how they navigate it. And then how, when they see that, I feel like they could reflect and say, wow, I don't want to be a part of that. And now I can do the opposite of the things that were happening to her in this book. Yes, like people who are kind of thinking we live in a post-racial world. <laughs> yes. like, um, having an example of what this actually looks like on a daily basis from a perspective that you, you cannot have. If, you, if you're not Black, you don't have a Black perspective. You can't. Right. So having that perspective in writing would be really helpful um, to help us examine ourselves and, and see what we're doing to perpetuate this. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I want to ask, last question, except for where we can find you, um, is what is the one thing people should walk away with? And I should have sent this one to you in advance because it's important. Um, what is the one thing that people should walk away with if they only remember one thing from today? I think they should walk away with the fact that we all have work to do. You should not listen to this and say, none of this applied to me. I'm good to go. We all have work to do. We all have biases that have been building up since we were younger that we need to examine take a hold of, get rid of, or, you know, just be aware of so that it doesn't affect the way that we treat people for better or for worse. So just walk away with the fact that even if you don't see it or feel it right now, you do have work to do, like sit, reflect, keep reading and learning until you find the area that you can improve upon. Like we should all be on a journey of, you know, improving ourselves and self-growth. So just realize that we all have work to do, whether you can see it right now or not. Yes, such a good piece of advice to leave us with. So where can people find you online to learn more? You can find me on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter. I'm never on my Facebook page, but <laughs> Instagram at read like a rock star. Um, that's where I am. All right. Thank you so much, Naomi, for having this conversation with us. I hope that it has given people some um, perspective and some examples of what things really look like so that they can kind of start to do that work of reflecting on their own um, place in all of this and what they're doing to contribute and what they're doing to work against it. And um, so that we can really build some positive relationships with, with teachers as coaches and really support teaching in a positive way, teaching and learning. It's the most important thing we can do. And yeah. if there's something that's affecting that, we need to know about it so that we can, we can do better. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you for, for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. So coaches, um, you can check out the show notes. And I'm actually going to put, um, Naomi mentioned the white supremacy pyramid and she mentioned the book, I'm still here. And I'm going to add links to that in the show notes, um, at buzzingwithmissb.com. So you can check that out and, um, it'll take you directly to those, those, uh, places. And I'll also put a link to Naomi's Instagram account so you can follow her there. That's read like a rock star. Yes. So happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. <laughs>